everybody. How's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name is Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? Oh, I'm doing okay. Been feeling pretty festive lately. I mean, I know it's only August, but Nisa's been learning to play piano lately, and if listening to a 15-second chunk of Jingle Bells played repeatedly for two and a half hours a day doesn't put you in the holiday spirit, I don't know what will. Anyway, I came up with a pretty good idea for an alternate version of A Christmas Carol. See, I figure convincing a wealthy industrialist to grow a conscience is probably kind of a long shot, even if you are three supernatural entities. So, in my version, the three time-traveling ghosts go to Bob Cratchit's house and help him plan a heist. See, the ghost of Christmas past can take him back in time, and so he can see... Ebenezer Scrooge putting the money in the vault last Christmas, and he can learn the combination to the locks. And maybe a few Christmases ago, Scrooge learned that he had a deadly peanut allergy. Interesting, could be useful. And the ghost of Christmas present can be like, okay, he's asleep now. Go, go, go. You have 20 minutes until he wakes up. Send Tiny Tim through the air duct. He's the only one small enough to reach. And then the Ghost of Christmas Future can give Bob Cratchit some, like, laser grappling hooks. Or, since it's Victorian times, just some stuff from now. Like, he can give him a motorcycle to make his escape on. And then, the next day, Scrooge wakes up and realizes that he's been robbed. And he goes over to Cratchit's house and he's like, Bob Cratchit, I've been robbed! What are you going to do about it? And Cratchit goes, nothing. It's my day off. And then he slams the door in his face, and then there's a slow pan away from Scrooge as he drops to his knees and bellows at the heavens, Bah-humbug! So that's my pitch for a Christmas caper. Hollywood, you may start bidding on it now. While I wait for those offers to roll in, let's talk about a comic book, shall we? Without any further ado, let's... Uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Devin Tui. Skeletor battles Orko. X-Men fight with or kiss. But will Gar befriend an Orca? Maybe in this synopsis. Spoiler, Gar does not befriend an Orca in this synopsis. Sorry, Devin. New Teen Titans, Volume 2, Number 46. August, 1988. Mind Quake. Written by Marv Wolfman, drawn by Eduardo Barreto, inked by Romeo Tangal and Pablo Marcos, lettered by Albert de Guzman, colored by Adrienne Roy, and edited by Barbara Kiesel. Teen Titan Roll Call Cyborg, Raven, Starfire, Nightwing, Wonder Girl, Jericho, Beast Boy. Danny fucking Chase! And Christopher King, I guess. Previously in the New Teen Titans. Cyborg got all pissy and threw a little tantrum because his girlfriend slash physical therapist, Dr. Sarah Charles, accepted a job offer in San Francisco. 
Then he realized he was being a dick and apologized. Then he threw another tantrum about it. Then he apologized. Then he threw another tantrum. So Sarah moved to San Francisco. It's possible I missed a tantrum slash apology in there, but you get the idea. Towards the tail end of Vic's demonstration of his vacillating levels of maturity, a college student named Christopher King showed up in New York seeking the Titans' help. Chris was being chased by a crazed young superpowered woman named Victoria Grant, who was hell-bent on murdering him. As Vicky chased him through the subways of New York, Chris thought about how a few years ago he and Vicky had been friends. Then one time they hooked up and had sex, and then never talked again. This train of thought was interrupted by the arrival of an actual train, which ran Vicky over when she was just about to incinerate Chris by throwing a fireball at him. But being run over by a train didn't slow Vicky down for long. It just switched her superpowers from being fiery to being watery, and she continued her maniacal pursuit of her erstwhile paramour. Fortunately for Chris, the Titan showed up to rescue him. Vicky beat up the Titans pretty bad, but then she announced that her powers were starting to wear off, and she ran away. The gang brought Chris back to their T-shaped skyscraper for some much-needed exposition. Once ensconced in the safety of our titular team's distinctly monogrammatic architecture, Chris explained that back in the day, he and Vicky used to live in the suburban town of Fairfax, Maine. A few years ago, they had found a pair of magic rotary dial phones inscribed with the letters H-E-R-O. The two teens soon found that whenever they dialed the word HERO into their respective devices, they would be transformed into one of a random, never-repeating array of superheroes, each with their own unique physiology and set of powers. Chris and Vicky fought crime together, became best friends, and started dating. They broke up when Vicky's parents moved away, and then they never saw each other again. Chris went to college and left his H-dial at his parents' house. He started dating a nice red-haired lady who was good at science. Then one day, Vicky showed up at Chris's college, used her H-dial to turn into a giant Godzilla lady, beat the shit out of Chris, and told him she was going to murder him. Oh no! Chris ran away and headed to his parents' house to retrieve his own H-dial, but Vicky had beaten him there and taken it herself. Unsure where to turn, Chris had fled to New York and sought out the Titans. While Christopher was slightly contradicting his own previous internal monologue with this exposition dump, Vicky was hanging out in a nearby tenement building, having an internal dialogue with an unknown malevolent voice that had taken up residence in her brain. The voice urged a tearful and conflicted Vicky to dial the word HERO backwards into her magic rotary phone so that she would get new superpowers and could go murder Chris. Reluctantly, Vicky did as the voice bade her, and was soon transformed into a lady made out of diamonds who seemed a lot less conflicted about wanting to murder Chris. In this new impervious body, Vicky made a beeline for the Titan Tower. When she arrived, loudly proclaiming her lethal intentions, the Titans confronted her, so she ripped Cyborg's arm off and beat the shit out of Wonder Girl Danny and Nightwing. Raven grabbed Vicky and yoinked her off to that dimension that she goes to to yell about her feelings. The Azerathian empath attempted to use her nonsense powers to chill Vicky the fuck out, but the entity living in Vicky's brain, which a caption informed us is named Korna, was too powerful for Raven. Vicky punched Raven out and implored Korna to use her powers to teleport Vicky back to the Titan Tower so that she could get back to murdering Chris. As soon as it was vocalized, Vicky's request was granted, and the mineral-bodied madwoman found herself back at the Titan's headquarters. While Vicky beat up Beast Boy and Starfire, Chris pled with Jericho to do something. A few mayhem-filled minutes later, Vicky slung Chris over one of her shoulders and informed him that she was totally going to murder him. But first, she needed to bring him to... The Children of the Sun! Gadzooks!
Who the fuck are the children of the sun? Who the fuck is this corner person who's living in Vicky's brain and can teleport between dimensions? And why the fuck is this issue called Mindquake? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so a drug-pushing Greek god-themed nuclear sex cult that we don't actually get to meet. Dunno, it never comes up again. And I guess because it takes place in San Francisco, which sometimes has earthquakes, and uh, some of the characters have minds? Scattered, injured, and demoralized, the Titans attempt to regroup. Dick, Beast Boy, and Starfire are badly battered and bruised. Vic has one of his arms ripped off. I mean, it was one of his robot arms, but still, ouch. Donna's back is all fucked up. And Danny? Well, something's going on with Danny, but it's a little bit unclear exactly what. He's definitely been injured in some way and is freaking out about it. He says that his leg's wet. He thinks he's bleeding, quote, down there, unquote. He wants to puke and that this has never happened before. So, either his leg is bleeding, or he peed himself, or his dick got shot, or he just got his first period, or some combination of those. Either way, he is definitely losing his shit. Beast Boy tries to calm him down, and Nightwing is like, Boy, this takes me back. I remember the first time I got badly injured in combat. I think I was ten. Man, Batman wasn't a great dad. Once Danny calms down a little bit, Beast Boy laments the fact that both Raven and Jericho were missing, and they have no way of tracking down Vicky and Chris. Dick is like, well, we don't know where Raven is, but she can teleport, so I'm sure she'll pop back here whenever she's ready to. As for Jericho, just before Vicky yoinked Chris, Joey did his lemurized thing at the kid and popped into his body. When Vicky gets where she's going, Joey can just pop out of Chris and let us know where they are. Or he could just take over Vicky's body and tell her to knock it off, but that would make for a pretty short issue, so I bet he doesn't do that. Now, we should all probably go to a doctor. While the rest of the gang heads off to Star Lab's infirmary to get patched up slash resoldered, Raven is starting to wake up. I guess Vicky must have hit her pretty hard, because she knocked her clear out of the stalagmite-filled yelling dimension, and now the avian-themed enchantress is just kind of floating aimlessly through random dimensions. She's a little bit stressed out about her predicament, but then she's like, Oh, that's right! I have magical nonsense abilities! I'll just use those to zoom around the cosmos for a few pages and look trippy, then I'll head back to Earth. Whee! Her magical calibration must still be a little bit out of whack from the punch to the dome she took, because when she does make it back to Earth, at first she shows up in a random location in the skies above the very specific location of Africa. Mm. She's so stoked to be back on Earth that she shoots up some magic fireworks around herself to celebrate before reconfiguring her astral GPS and popping back to New York. A tribe of people who had been starving due to a drought that has lasted the last three years see the celestial explosion and are like, Hey, those lights probably represent some sort of divine intervention. Let's all pack up and head that direction. Maybe there's some food over there. The captions imply that Raven's random appearance in the sky represented the salvation of these people, which, first of all, gross and condescending, and B, 
It was a totally random location she appeared in. We have no reason to believe that the land where she did her little light show is any more fertile than where these guys are now. They might well be using the last of their energy to make a literally fruitless journey. Meanwhile, at Star Labs, the gang is getting their various injuries treated. A crew of nurses slap some band-aids on Gar and fetch Danny a clean pair of pants. Starfire is like, You know what I think might help? If you guys started letting me kill people. There is nothing about this situation that would not be better if I hadn't murdered Vicky. And Danny. But definitely Vicky. Next time I see her, I'm just gonna murder her, okay? Dick reminds Starfire that the Titans have a no-murder policy. Unless they're in space. And they're not in space right now. A doctor welds a new arm onto Vic and tells the rest of the gang that they're all pretty beat up and they should probably take it easy for a little while. Dick is like, Okay, we aren't going to, though. The doctor is like, Well, you should, or you might die or something. You need time to heal. Then Raven pops in and is like, What if I use my nonsense powers to heal them? Also, I just saved Africa. You're welcome. The doctor's like, Okay, I don't have time to unpack that, but no you didn't, and even if you use your magic to heal everybody, they won't really be healed. Because they're science hurt, not magic hurt. Nightwing is like, well, we were probably going to ignore you even if what you said made sense, but since that doesn't, bye. Meanwhile, in a loft in San Francisco, Vicky has Chris tied to a chair. She's reverted to her regular old human body and seems to have lost all interest in trying to murder him. Instead, she kind of vamps around and acts all sexy and talks about how now that she's in San Francisco, she likes kinky stuff and wants to seduce him. She's like, you probably want to know how I got all sexy and evil, huh? Chris is like, yeah, I guess. Vicky's like, well... After we either dated or hooked up one time, which is a little bit unclear given how inconsistently you described the nature of our relationship in the last issue, my parents moved to the fancy suburbs of San Francisco. I was bored, so I started hanging out with some bad kids and doing drugs. One time I got high and dialed the hero dial backwards. That was pretty fun. Maybe it made me a villain instead of a hero, although that implies that there are some power sets that are inherently evil regardless of how you use them, so... Tough to tell. The point is, I got so high, I forgot how to spell. Anyway, one night, me and my naughty friends got some fake IDs and went to a sex club in the city. I went into the back room and did some sexy sex stuff with a bunch of people in robes who talked about atomic power and Greek gods and stuff. They seemed pretty cool, so I joined their sex cult. It's called the Children of the Sun. I was yelling about them last issue, remember? Back when I was obsessed with killing you, which I don't now seem interested in? Well, the cult knew a bunch of stuff about the H-Dial for some reason, and they taught me how to use it better. I told them about you, and they wanted to meet you, so I kidnapped you for them. Want to have weird sex? That's the sort of thing I'm into now that I'm evil. Chris declines the offer. I guess Vicky must have gotten pretty absorbed in her sex cult exposition, because she didn't notice that at some point during her delivery of it, Jericho hopped out of Chris's body, snuck into the other room, and phoned the Titans. A short while later, our titular team Kool-Aid mans through Vicky's window and attacks her. Vicky does all right for herself, considering that she didn't have a chance to access the H-Dial and is in her regular human form. 
She explains that thanks to her sex cult training, she can now store some superpowers in her body. Neat. Despite her sex cult's helpful hints, Vicky is soon overpowered by the Titans. Starfire's like, I'm just gonna go ahead and murder her. Is that alright with everybody? Dick's like, no, we'd rather you didn't. So Starfire doesn't kill Vicky, but she's not happy about it. The Titans drag Vicky to Star Lab's San Francisco branch and hand her over to Dr. Sarah Charles, who has just taken over as head of the lab's West Coast operations. Vic waits out in the car because he's still being a fucking baby about Sarah taking the job. Damn it, cyborg! As Sarah straps an unconscious Vicky into some high-tech science fiction nonsense machine, Beast Boy is like, You stink, Dr. Charles. Why'd you betray Victor by having hopes and dreams outside of your relationship? Damn it, Beast Boy. Sarah patiently explains to Garth that she is an entire human being with her own needs and career ambitions, and she hopes that one day Victor will understand that. Chris changes the subject. He points out how it's really ironic that they had to dope Vicky up to keep her from fighting them, because in his opinion, the whole reason she turned bad in the first place was because of dope. Whoa. Deep. Guess those college classes are really paying off, huh, Chris? The heroes file out of the room, leaving an apparently sedated Vicky alone in the lab. Wait, did I say apparently sedated? I sure did. See, Chris, it's a different literary device, one known as foreshadowing. As soon as she is sure they've left, Vicky opens her eyes and gives a little soliloquy about how thanks to another helpful hint she picked up from her sex cult buddies, she can sometimes transform herself without using the H-dial. Not all the time, though. Only when it's narratively convenient. Chris, if you're listening, this is an example of a literary device known as bullshit. Vicky transforms herself into a being made of some kind of cosmic energy and starts wrecking the joint. The Titans rush back into the room and start fighting her again, but this time Vicky has the upper hand. Starfire is like, See, told you I should have murdered her. In rapid succession, Vicky takes out Nightwing, Starfire, Jericho, Beast Boy, and Danny fucking Chase. Although, to his credit, Danny does manage to not pee his pants this time. So, good for him. Despite this minor triumph on Danny's part, things are looking pretty grim for the good guys. But then, Cyborg gets tired of waiting in the car and busts into the room. He blasts Vicky with his sonic cannon. Vicky screams out in anguish and relents her attack. Hooray! Then she turns into some kind of surreal robot monster lady and renews her attack. Dang. In her newly mechanized form, Vicky beats the shit out of the Titans for a minute, but then Raven is like, Wait, I know. I'll take her back to that stalagmite-filled yelling dimension and use my powers to make her chill out. When Cyber Vicky hears this plan, she freaks the fuck out and is like, No! Not that one thing that had absolutely no effect on me last time you tried it! Anything but that! So she turns into a being of pure light and teleports away. Huh. As she leaves, a small metal object falls from her grasp and lands at Chris's feet. He picks it up. It's Vicky's H-dial. Nightwing is like, So, uh, not an ideal ending, but at least now you have her magic doohickey so she can't turn into monsters anymore, right? Chris is like, Nope. 
Remember, she still has my H-dial that she swiped from my folks' house. We're in the same predicament that we started out in. Nightwing is like, really? Then there was really no point to any of this. The end. Yup. And joining us once again via the magic of telephonic communication is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how's it going? Hey, it's going pretty good. How are you? I'm doing all right. Do you listen to many other podcasts? I listen to a few. You know when sometimes one of the hosts will say, oh, we have the best listeners? Mm-hmm. Whenever I hear that, I gotta ask myself whether that person is a fool or a liar. Because clearly we have the best listeners. I agree. They send us very thoughtful things. Yeah, just this week we got trucker hats that say Bozone on them, which is, I guess, the name of a brewery in Montana. Those were sent to us by Devin Tui. Devin and his husband, Brian, host a podcast called Meet Your Doom about Doom Patrol. And I was a guest on that recently. Mm -hmm. And that was a really fun time. And he was also good enough to inform me that I have been mispronouncing his last name for the past, I don't know, six years or so. I just noticed that you said it different. Yep. And I will continue to endeavor to say it different because that's actually the right way. But Devin was an excellent host and I really enjoyed that. But he sent us those hats as a thank you. And then another listener, Josh, sent us one of the stranger gifts that I've received. And I was just really delighted by them. They are these little plastic picket signs that are cocktail stirrers and they're still in the box they're from 1969 and it's really rad uh i am looking forward to the next time i have you over to record in person we will have to stir our cocktails with those i love it yeah that's awesome i i saw when you shared that photo of them it really reminded me of my maternal grandfather who had a collection of he called them swizzle sticks but um Ooh. you know it's a cocktail stirring things nice yeah we should uh mix up a highball of uh canadian whiskey and ginger ale that was his beverage of choice in uh honor of the old man yeah we will absolutely do that next time i see you nice canadian whiskey that's just like a regular whiskey but wearing more denim yeah okay sweeter than you'd imagine and with better health care mm -hmm. well Corey, are you ready to talk about a comic book sure let's do it Corey, what did you think of this comic book? Well, I guess I would start by quoting our old pal Benjamin Grimm. <laughs> what happened? Yeah. The cover is enjoyable. It is. It reminds me a lot of the uh, Sienkiewicz New Mutants covers that would have Warlock on them. There's that kind of weird amalgam of like technology and surrealism that makes for a really intriguing character design. Mm -hmm. That vicky has adopted on the cover and she does in the book too it has hero spelled out backwards but it is broken up by her in the middle of it and so it's appropriate that we were just talking about canadian whiskey because i was reading it rather than o-r-e-h as her just saying or a oh that's funny i i read it because her posture and you know her mouth she looks like she's kind of screaming at the viewer mm -hmm. is like uh didn't Kool-Aid Man say, oh yeah, when he broke through the wall? 
something? Uh, no, you're thinking of Macho Man Randy Savage. <laughs> I always get those mixed up. <laughs> no, they they both did. She's yeah. doing a Macho Kool Aid of, and it looks like she's saying, "Oh, <laughs> oh, rare." <laughs> yeah. Like if Scooby Doo was doing a Kool Aid Man impression. Maybe a little more menacing, but yeah, sure. I viewed it as somebody had said to her, like, "Well, all right, Vicky, we can have maple syrup." or go to Tim Hortons. And she wants to do both. So she's like, or, eh? Because <laughs> she wants and. But everything at Tim Hortons is maple syrup flavored. Ah, uh, maybe that's her point. Mm. So yeah, I agree. Enjoyable cover. Honestly, the story inside, if I hadn't read the last issue, I would think was fine. But... In some ways, this might be the issue of the title that has broken me. Like, <laughs> as I was taking notes, I kept just muttering to myself, why am I even fucking bothering? Wolfman didn't take notes. So I also had the thing that, I don't know, I feel like historically, maybe I've been a little more patient or lenient than you. But here, this idea that, you know, I'm threatening a story arc. Oh, never mind. Yeah. It feels like... I don't know. Did they just abandon this and it'll come back later? Or it maybe never will? I don't know. I mean, actually kind of both. Because some version of the Children of the Sun are brought back about a year from now. But this is the last we see of Vicky Grant for like a decade at least, I think, in DC Comics. Just, she's not a thing. They drop that whole thing between her and Chris. At least until like 2001 or something like that. And it really does promise it like, oh, they'll get back to this in a couple of issues or something. Nope, they just drop it. I guess she's fine or whatever. Maybe we aren't supposed to care about whether she's fine or not anymore now that we know that she has a sexual appetite. Mm -hmm. That seems to be partly like the book's stance. That was the other thing that pissed me off about it. One of the other things, it sets up all of this stuff. Like when she was in Raven's yelling dimension in the previous issue, like, mm -hmm. the voice inside her is given a name, the name Corna, And we're like, oh, okay, so this issue, we'll find out who Corna is. Nope. Nope. Total drop of that. We never revisit any of that again. Her character, Vicky's character, completely changes between the last issue and this issue. In the last issue, she was portrayed as kind of a fragile, over-emotional girl who had a traumatic experience related to Chris and... It just kind of broke her mind, and now she was bloodthirsty and possibly being possessed by demons or something like that. And then in this issue, it reads more like a cautionary tale about moving from the Midwest, you know? And going to a club and, and maybe taking some drugs, and then... Well, sp specifically, it felt like this is the dangers of moving to San Francisco. From Fairfax, though. Is Fairfax like a bad town? No, it's nice, but it's just like it's a it's just like over the the bridge. Oh no, they had I think previously lived in Fairfax, Colorado. No, oh I I had it down as uh... Fairfax, California. Yeah, maybe I, maybe I maybe I got it mixed up. Hey there, this is Editor Hub here in the future. Just wanted to point out, Corey and I both got it wrong. Turns out, Vicky and Chris are from Fairfax, Maine. Maybe I just assumed it was Midwestern because everything about their vibe was kind of Midwestern. And then the story, like I said, it reads like a cautionary tale of like, 
well, this is what's going to happen if you go to specifically San Francisco. And there was something about the way that it was presented that I don't know if it was intentional. I suspect it was not intentional, but it read as fairly homophobic, I felt like. Did you pick up on any of that? Uh, no, I might have missed it. It's just when she is describing her experience, when she is now in full vixen mode, not the superhero vixen, but like she's being a vixen and has gone from wanting to kill Chris to kind of trying to seduce him. And now she wants him to be a bad kid like her or whatever. She is giving him like the tour guide thing about San Francisco. And she's like, and there are a lot of freedoms here, Christopher, things that just aren't accepted elsewhere. A lot of personal practices that make life exciting. And then when she is first brought into the deviant lifestyle of the fucking, I don't know, ancient Greek nuclear sex cult that she ends up joining. In my gym class, I met a girl who said I could have a good time and brought her into the city. And the, the woman's wearing a derby. And just, I feel like the very concept of San Francisco, especially in the 80s, if it is painted as a libertine type place, it's just that was the coding of the way that San Francisco was presented. So like I said, maybe that's not intentional, but I don't know, man. It's like I half expected her to start playing Dungeons and Dragons or something like that too. <laughs> Just like get all of the greatest fears of conservative religious parents in the suburbs out there in this one issue. Yeah, so I totally did read that bit of dialogue and that exchange is, you know, her kind of, putting her indoctrination to the to the cult the children of the sun in terms of you know relaxed sexual attitudes mm -hmm. and or swinging or, or something like that and you know kind of trying to get chris interested in it yeah that way so yeah maybe some of that is is coded as homophobic but more so like she's trying to just be like hey man you should try everything yeah and i don't know like I said, I think the story would have read fine. It seemed like it was picking up as the second issue of just a different series. Like, it just didn't seem like it picked up where the last one left off. Part of that, we do have a slightly different art team. The inks in this are by a mix of Romeo Tangal and Pablo Marcos. And there are some sequences where that was more notable than others. I think the main one was a sequence that just honestly didn't make any sense to me and read like filler. Kind of interesting filler. Kind of racist filler. But the whole Raven thing. Oh, Raven saves Africans. Yeah. Yeah, boo. Why was that even in there? It didn't have anything to do with anything. And it didn't seem necessary to the plot. It really felt like, uh, you know what? We have four pages that are unaccounted for. So I guess Raven will do this. It didn't seem like her character needed to go on any kind of a journey. In the last issue, she had taken Vicky to her dimension full of stalagmites where she likes to yell about her feelings, and Vicky punched her and left her there. And then this issue, she has to go on some kind of a fucking gods-must-be-crazy-inspired sojourn to get back to our reality, when in the past she could just teleport there, no problem. There are some nice art sequences in there, but it is just bizarre. And also just the idea that 
Well, this tribe just would have stayed on the land where they had been starving to death because of a drought for the last three years, and they all would have died. But then Raven did some fireworks, so they were like, oh, you know what? Maybe we should go where there's food. Yeah. It, ugh. it was just frustrating. There was so much about this issue that I found incredibly frustrating. Yeah, it is. I, I know, I mean, it's kind of a big part of the show and a lot of what we talk about but this idea of you know this is media that like if we would have consumed when it came out how different how radically different it reads now yeah that is very much the case i'm sure and also if we had read it as it came out honestly there's a fair chance that i would have skipped the last issue or i might not have caught it or it would have been a month since I'd read it, so I would have been like, ah, I must just be remembering things wrong, you know? Mm-hmm. Yep. And I think maybe it is banking on that for a certain extent. Wolfman had been writing comics since the mid to late 60s, so at that point, I think comics were meant to be more disposable and have a higher audience turnover rate, so maybe that's part of it. I will say one thing that I did appreciate about this issue was seeing... Danny Chase finally show some fallibility, although I can't believe I'm saying this. I think they might have overcorrected a little bit. <laughs> it took me a minute to sort out what was going on. I was like, oh, he got scared and he, he peed his pants. But then he's like, I think my penis is injured. And I was like, oh, my God, did they did they hate him that much? <laughs> I think by down there, he meant his leg. I think he was maybe shot in the leg, and that's why his leg is wet. I don't think they were necessarily trying to say, I peed myself, and also something's wrong down there. It's like, wait, did did Danny just have a wet dream? Is that what's happening? Wow, I didn't actually even think he was injured. I thought he had just like literally peed his pants because he was so freaked out. It's possible. He says that he is hurt. So, I, I mean, there's a couple of different possibilities. One thing that is not a possibility, but that is a certainty, is that he does not properly understand the slang for throwing up because he says twice, I'm going to toss it. I'm going to toss it. <laughs> uh... And, I mean, honestly, to an extent, I enjoyed seeing that, but only because I have already fully written off the character. Like, I think you do need to show him being a little bit more vulnerable, but I don't know, man. Like, there's a midway point between I'm the best at everything and I'm going to be the one who solves every problem forever and, oh, the lady was mean to me, so I peed myself and now I'm going to throw up. Yeah, I agree with you. I After reading through that, I was like, that was way less satisfying than I thought it might be. I think part of that, too, is because of the way that Nightwing just kind of shames him after that. Everybody is handling it pretty well for the most part. And it's like, nah, nah, you went through some shit. It'll be okay. But the way that Nightwing is like, don't worry about it is, you know, I had a totally similar reaction when I was 10 years old. Ouch. Saying a 14-year-old is acting like a 10-year-old is one of the harshest things you could say to him. Oh, man, I somehow just skipped over that does... Nightwing called the age out specifically that he was? Yeah. I know what it's like, Danny. I remember the first time I was badly hurt. I was maybe 10 years old. Batman showed no mercy, but I pulled through. You will too. Yeah. No, that's an underhanded uh, assurance if ever there was one. Yeah. 
And it doesn't seem like he's necessarily taking a particularly different track than Batman had. In the past, one of the few things that I enjoyed about the Danny fucking Chase character is that Nightwing, while I found it frustrating that he was being so overly supportive and encouraging, I liked that he was trying to overcorrect for the mistakes that Batman had maybe made with him and trying to be a more loving and compassionate father figure. And now he's sick of that. Mm -hmm. And yeah, as sick as I am of Danny Chase, and as much as I just do not like how he has been written, it's like, man, you went so far that now I feel kind of bad for him. Yeah, exactly. So I mentioned that there's a slightly different art team in this, that Pablo Marcos is helping out with the inks on some of these panels. And I'm wondering if that is what led to some panels that seemed pretty incongruous. Did you notice any of those? Um, no, I think I was kind of letting it wash over me, but if you point it out, it'll probably be clear. There are a couple of main ones. The first one is what I would call the sexy, angry back injury that Starfire has on page two. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I noticed that. <laughs> that is oddly drawn. Yeah, she is hunched over a rock, arching her back and presenting as she is being angry and injured after having lost a fight. It is a really oddly sexualized panel in a way that we're not used to seeing even for Starfire. And it did just strike me as off. Yeah, I saw that and thought to myself something like the artist had looked at a Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue. Mm. I was like, oh yeah, that'll work. It does have that feeling to it. The other one that just seemed really off to me is in San Francisco. It's on page 18, and it's after they have defeated Vicky the first time when Starfire has just gone off on her, and she's knocked out. They've brought her to Star Labs. Sarah is saying, Mr. King, until we can actually cure her, we'll have to keep her drugged. And he's like, drugged. Sorry, I'm laughing, doctor. But that's exactly how all this began. In that panel, it looks like the comic book is on drugs. The cityscape, Star Labs building specifically, just looks like it's melting. I was wondering that. I thought it was like a perspective shot where the camera is kind of coming in from like the upper right kind of mm -hmm. fisheye almost. But yeah, it looks like the building is all wobbly and trippy. Yeah, it's, it's like a stoned again poster, except for starring a skyscraper of a science building. And, and I get that the building itself is supposed to be like space age and beveled in a weird way. But that time, it just seemed off. Mm -hmm. I also got to say, the thing that Wolfman seems to remember, it's like he doesn't have the short term memory in his writing, but he just has the long term memory. So these minor character arcs just keep repeating themselves and the one that we get again in this issue is Starfire's going crazy with bloodlust and she's gonna kill somebody because she's too emotional. We've seen that be a concern on and off for literally years now in this book and it keeps building to the point where it seems like it's going to be a story and then they will resolve it and they did it again and I'm just fucking sick of it. Yeah, though this one, it ended in a way that I don't know we've seen before, where they left a fair amount of 
moral ambiguity with her violent approach to things because she beats Vicky up and they sedate her and think she's going to get cured and everything's going to be fine and then she escapes and beats everybody up again Mm -hmm. and Starfire's like see you should have let me if not kill her incapacitate her and everybody else is like hmm (laughs) yeah I guess we maybe haven't seen that as much in this comic book maybe it just seems familiar to me because it was a very common comic book trope for super teams in the 80s you would have a lot i think maybe more in marvel than in dc but of characters who were like look we're on a super team together but i kill people and the other characters were like well we don't kill people but i guess we could put our differences aside right yeah. And they would have that debate. Like with the X-Men, it was like Wolverine is like, I'm not going to apologize for the fact that I like to murder people sometimes. And I know there were a couple of like West Coast Avengers stories where that was a thing when like Moon Knight had joined up with that team. It was like a constant debate between like the Punisher and Daredevil and stuff. The Punisher being the more extreme version of that. But it was a conversation that I think came up a lot more in the 80s and i think there's a lot about this comic that just feels more dated i think part of that is this idea and it's odd that it has come up more than once with wolfman but the idea of sexually active young women being just fundamentally broken you know like we saw that with tara and we see this with vicky and it's just creepy I mean, with Tara, it was definitely more creepy, in part because she was younger. And in this, it's unclear how old Vicky was when this stuff was happening. It said that she had a fake ID. I assumed that she was 18 and you needed to be 21 to go to the club, because I think her and Chris are college students. But there was also talk of a girl being in her gym class, so maybe she was in high school. But the idea of adolescent female sexuality being tied to evil, you know? Yeah, and I mean, also it's complicated in this couple issues by it started with this kind of foreshadowing that, you know, something really creepy was going on. Yeah. And then all we get is that, well, no, they're just, you know, teenagers that had a relationship. So I guess it's the fact that, you know, the Chris King character is A, a a dude, and B, Mm -hmm. is engaged to be married that like, okay, his sexuality is fine. Right. And I really think it is more the former than the latter, whether that's intentional or not. I think that's just the backdrop of when this comic book came out. It was, yeah, they had a sexual encounter when they were like 16, and then they broke up, and it destroyed her life, and he's doing fine. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it seems like her fixation with Chris is more like, yeah, after that, then I decided to go into the city and start doing drugs and having sex and going to clubs and probably listening to jazz music. Um, Oh, and yeah, I joined a weird nuclear hippie sex cult thing. Mm -hmm. The Children of the Sun is an organization that does come up once more in the New Teen Titans in an annual about a year from when this one came out. But I skimmed it and it didn't seem to make a ton of sense or necessarily tie back that strongly to the way the organization was presented in this issue and hinted at in the last issue. It also felt like a ripoff that we never met them, you know? Mm -hmm. 
So something occurs to me with the, the frustration that I'm having, and, and I think you're having too, with these one-off or two-off kind of episodic adventures. You know, I'm uh, wondering now if that was kind of more par for the course, and if you were just reading these books, you would take that in stride. And, you know, the fact that, like, I'm binging on shows on, like, this, all this amazing media that's out there now that has this, you know... <laughs> narrative structure that you follow and there's x amount of episodes and you watch it and you're done and you're just used to the story progressing i think that's probably part of it but also i don't think that's the entirety of it because we have seen arcs that worked this is a new trend in this comic book at this point we had like the judas contract Mm -hmm. you know we definitely had issues with a lot of what happened in that But as an arc, it held together and it worked. The Brother Blood one, it went on too long, but it had a beginning, middle, and an end. You know, probably way too much middle, but still... Too much blood licking. (laughs) Yeah, but it came to a conclusion. And that is something that has happened in these books before, and then it just kind of stopped happening. It's been the past dozen or so issues that the book is really unable to get traction at this point, and... It coincides with when I think Wolfman was reportedly suffering from a lot of writer's block, and it's frustrating. It just doesn't seem to be able to get going as a story. And I blame myself partly because in the last issue, I let myself get my hopes up because it seemed like, okay, this is a good setup for a two-issue arc. Mm -hmm. And it could have been, and it wasn't. It was a decent setup for a two-issue arc, and... I don't know, in some ways, an all right conclusion for a two-issue arc. It's just that the two issues didn't seem to be connected in any way. Yeah, and I don't know. The conclusion, the bad guy sucked up all the energy and flew away. Yeah. (laughs) It's kind of let down. Well, especially as she does that, Chris King says, she's turning to white again. I'm sorry, again? What? (laughs) She had not turned to light at any point before then. We've seen diamonds. We've seen fish punching water. Uh Uh-huh. We've seen a giant Godzilla lady. Mm -hmm. Like, turning to light didn't seem to be necessarily in her bag of tricks. Unless he was just referring to, she's turning to light again. You know, like back when she did in one of those uh, comics from four years ago that we were in together. Mm -hmm. It, It didn't work. It was frustrating, and it was one of many things that I found frustrating about this issue. There were things that I liked about it, for the most part. I think the art was very good. There were some of those weird panels that I talked about. As much as I didn't like Raven's weird great bird hope (laughs) sojourn that she went on, it had a really fun quality to a couple of the panels that were in it where I was like, yeah, I can, uh, I can see that being a blacklight poster I'd put up in my dorm room. Yeah, I did love that aspect of that kind of raven interlude before she saved Africa. But like, mm-hmm. she's floating in between dimensions and is like, oh, this sucks, I'm so scared. <laughs> and it's, it's kind of like how every now, you know, if you're having a dream that's too much and you're like, hey, self, <laughs> you should wake up. This isn't cool. And you wake up and you're like, oh, wow, that's amazing. That worked. Mm-hmm. She kind of did that. She was like, oh, so scared. Wait a minute. I can fly. I can do all this cool shit. I'm in charge. Yay! Yay. 
I'll make another star like 2,000 years ago. So this is maybe a setup for, I don't know, Jesus 2, the legend of Curly's gold? <laughs> maybe. Fingers crossed. I don't know. I was saying there were things that I liked. Oh, here was a thing that I liked. I liked Sarah Charles's speech that she gives. It comes out of nowhere. It doesn't connect to anything but her speech about being a strong, independent woman and how she can't be codependent in a relationship. It connects to Beast Boys sticking his nose where his nose does not belong. That's what it connects to. That's true. I meant more that nobody has any reaction to her saying all that. <laughs> like, Beast Boy is just like, hey, how come you abandoned my friend? Which, oh man, you were doing honestly pretty well in this issue up until that point, Beast Boy. Both in, like, being concerned for Danny and being there for him initially, and then the way that he played it off by going back to their traditional relationship of throwing little barbs at him. I was like, oh, okay, you're doing good. And then they get out there, and Sarah Charles is like, I wish Victor understood how important this position is to me. And Beast Boy's like, yeah, like, you don't understand how important you were to him. He loved you, and you left him. And then she gives this big speech. I love Vic too, but real love is when you care for the other person and sometimes put your needs aside for them. Vic has his life cut out for him, his work at Star Labs. He's secure. I'm not Gar. I needed this job, and when Vic realizes that I feel fulfilled, it will make our relationship be that much better. Perhaps he'll understand why. I wouldn't dream of stopping him from doing something that was important to him, yet he wants to do that to me. The rules of what's important to oneself don't change because he's a man and I'm a woman. My needs are as important as his. And every all the rest of the Titans are like, mm, uncomfortable silence, mumbles. Mm -hmm. And Chris is like, ah, oh, look at uh, look at Vicky over there. Mm-hmm. So, uh, can you, can you patch her up? I thought it was a good and important sentiment to be presented, even if it was a little bit ham-fisted, but it really did seem shoehorned in there. Yeah, I appreciated that bit as well. And yeah, Vicky looked nice as a robot lady. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, yeah, I think that's all that I liked. <laughs> yeah, artwork was great. The machinery, the detail, there was a lot of that. Mm-hmm biomechanical stuff of the robot lady yeah i haven't always been a huge fan of pablo marcos's inks in the past but i think that it was interesting having him in on this and it brought a different flair to some of the stuff even if all of it didn't work uh, enough of it did it was weird hearing a character talk about doing drugs and being high i thought it was kind of a funny touch that the whole thing about dialing Hero backwards was just a thing that she did when she was high because she was like, oh, whoops, I forgot how to spell Hero. It seemed like it was going to be a big sinister machination in the previous issue, and then, nah, she was just high. Goofing. Yep. It did seem odd to hear a character talk about doing drugs in these issues. I guess we've seen it before, and this is certainly presented as a cautionary tale in the same way that, like, the runaway issue was and stuff, but... Yeah, don't do drugs, kids, or you're gonna wind up getting seduced by a nuclear sex cult and trying to steal your ex-partner's powers. I totally thought you were gonna say Xbox. <laughs> Can't steal your own Xbox, man. Yeah, but you won't even know that because you're so fucking high. That's the kind of cautionary tale that's gonna really help kids. Hmm. So one thing I did appreciate was that I was right about Jericho. 
in the last issue, I speculated that maybe he was going to go inside Chris's body. And that was why they had that exchange where Chris was like, can't you do anything? So that was validating. Even if not a ton came from it, he was essentially a tracking device and little else. But it's nice to be right about things. Yeah, no, I, I had that same thought. I was relieved that he just wasn't abusing his already very creepy power. Mm-hmm. Just using it to get his beeper to the right phone. Yep. Well, is there anything else you want to talk about before we get into the minutia, Corey? No, I think uh, whatever is left will come up there. Okay. I have a drink of my drink. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Sorry, I gotta... <laughs> Huh? Okay, Rick, would you mind singing us into the minutia? <laughs> now we're going to have a drink. Uh, of okay, drink. me too. Man. Oof. We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, Corey, what do you feel like starting off with? Well, as usual, why don't we talk about some clothing? All right. Sartorially speaking, which aspects of fashion in this issue did you find most noteworthy, and why were they Dazzler wearing a bowler hat? Well, you hit the nail on the head. <laughs> it was such a cool picture. She looks so good. Uh-huh. I would have followed that lady from my gym class into San Francisco. Heck, I probably would have joined a sex cult. Yep. It's that good of a bowler hat and an eye makeup? What would you call that? Yeah, it, it's like a starburst eyeshadow. It is only over one eye, and it is very reminiscent of Dazzler from Marvel Comics. Dazzler would sometimes have it over both eyes, sometimes only over one eye, but it was similar enough that I was like, is that Dazzler? Are they making a little joke? Also, her derby hat, I thought maybe it was light reflecting off of it, but it looked like it had like a yellow dotted line on it, like a road. Yeah, some kind of filigree or, or detail. I also was reminded a little bit of the Clockwork Orange film oh. adaptation, where it's because the bowler hat and the eye thing. Mm. But uh, yeah, probably more of a Dazzler than a little Alex thing going on there. I mean, honestly, Clockwork Orange would probably make more sense as a reference, but it does look so much more like Dazzler. And uh, yeah, bowler is one of those hats that if you can pull it off, it's a hell of a look. But really high difficulty level. Mm, I don't know. I think a bowler is below a fedora on the can you pull it off scale mm. of difficulty with hats. Probably top hat at the top. Can you look cool with a top hat? I don't know. Mm. Scrooge McDuck looks pretty cool in one. How Abraham bad? Lincoln, I'm sorry, but that guy looks like a fucking nerd. <laughs> Nobody likes Scrooge McDuck, though. What? Who likes Scrooge We're going to have to have this talk off the air. <laughs> Scrooge McDuck's pretty cool. All right, so other than Scrooge McDuck, what did you have for fashion? Well, I think we got to discuss Vicky's outfit. She is wearing, like, a lingerie slip as a top, and then a, like, studded leather belt. Red, I got to believe, leather mini skirt with some fishnet stockings, and, of course, a headband. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty solid look. Yeah, and what I have to believe are red patent leather boots that are those 80s kind with the pointy heels and pointy toes. Yeah, it, it is, I think, a good look for her. That outfit and the kind of confidence that she seems to have 
rather than being like a scared and broken person like her personality shift is really remarkable between last issue and this issue and i think maybe her costume does some of the work with that yeah it's funny because it she does read as much more you know confident and feeling good about herself but it's definitely i think coded like she's a bad girl now so watch out chris yeah she's wearing a bustier and fishnets and mm-hmm. Well, and saying the word kinky and mm-hmm. like, oh, you were never into any kinky stuff, but it feels good to be naughty. And it's just like, Ugh. and uh, Jericho is really perturbed by that as he's <laughs> listening into the conversation. He's grimacing. Corey, every issue of a new Teen Titans comic book has an Aqualad the greatest of Teen Titans, and also a Beast Boy, the worst of Teen Titans. In this issue, who did you have as your Aqualad, and who did you have as your Beast Boy? For Aqualad, I went with Aqualad, because we talk about him later. <laughs> okay! Just kidding. It's, this, this was tough, both categories. Yeah, I had a difficult time as well. For my Aqualad, I ultimately went with Starfire just based on out of how effective everybody was at fighting Vicky when she was in fightable format. Mm-hmm. Um, she seemed to do the best. Yeah, I went with Jericho because you often hear the phrase, you had one job, and Jericho only had one job, but he did his job. So you know what? Good for you, man. That's a good point, because if it wasn't for for Jericho, they wouldn't have uh, found them. Except for they would have almost immediately anyway, as soon as Raven shows up, because Raven was able to immediately locate all of the other Titans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. And join them in San Francisco. So I don't see why she wouldn't have been able to locate Chris and Vicky. But still, he was given something to do, and he did it. And him being like a human tracking device, that part isn't as impressive. But the fact that he escaped Vicky's notice the whole time. Like, at what point did he pop out of Chris and then he's just hanging out in there? I gotta believe, it's they're in San Francisco and it doesn't seem like Vicky has a ton of money. That's gotta be one bedroom, best case scenario. Probably a studio apartment. And he's just hanging out in there without being noticed for at least hours, probably the better part of a day. Hmm. Yeah, maybe it's like one of those, uh, what do they call them, like a quad, com- like where there's the shared kitchen in the bedroom. Oh, okay. Stuff. He's like hanging out in that shared kitchen. Right, maybe he's just having a good time, like, you know, microwaving some Hot Pockets with some other members of the Children of the Sun. And they're just like, oh, you must be friends with Al. He's out of town right now. Yep, that's probably it. Not to take away from his accomplishment, but. No, still impressive. Yeah. To make small talk like that with a bunch of cultists. Mm-hmm. Impressive. Not bad. Yeah, especially when you got to just use body language, because mm-hmm. I don't know if they know ASL. Oh, probably not. Yeah. So, good job. And then, you know, he held his beeper up to the phone really well. Mm-hmm. Conversely, who did you have as your beast boy? There were definitely options in this. I decided to go traditional. I didn't think Beast Boy, I I did appreciate, like you pointed out earlier, how he was there for DFC in his moment of need, but then, you know, kind of got back to normal. I thought he did a terrible job fighting. Mm -hmm. He just basically got blasted both times right away. I get 
that he wants to defend his buddy Cyborg, but, you know, don't do that. Yeah, I have him as my choice, too, although I also do have Cyborg as my backup for just being a fucking baby. Well, for two reasons. One, for being a fucking baby about the whole Sarah Charles situation and just being, like, all sulky and being like, I'm just gonna wait in the car. You guys go in and talk to her. Because mm -hmm. he's clearly right there. He just won't go inside the building to see her. And she's also still, I believe, his physical therapist, and he was just injured very badly. He had his whole arm taken off. She should be taking a look at that. Yeah, suck it up, man. Yeah. The other reason that I dinged uh, Cyborg in this is because... When he does finally show up and stop waiting in the car and makes his dramatic entrance, what he says is, what are you guys sitting around playing with yourselves for? Let's blast some buns. <laughs> you didn't like that? I mean, I enjoyed reading it, but it is an inappropriate thing to say. Especially when you have a, a young teen there with you. Oh, come on. You guys stop playing with yourselves. It's time to blast some buns. I loved it. That was maybe my favorite. <laughs> that was my pie not made out of steel in this issue. I thought that was funny. Yeah, it was probably mine too. <laughs> <sighs> well, that's a good segue into a panel. Corey, what was your favorite panel in this issue? Page 23, The Bun Blaster. <laughs> yeah, kidding aside, I know I tend to go for those kind of graphic designery poster-looking panels a lot, and this is definitely mm -hmm. one of them where there's those concentric, almost like Aqualad, Aquaman rings coming out, and he's pointing his bun blaster at the, at the viewer, <laughs> and it's dynamic, and it just looks cool. Uh, do you think he lobbied for, he, he tries to call his white noise cannon his bun blaster yeah that's why in the bottom somebody's going vic <laughs> like stop saying that stop trying to make bun blaster a thing it's just it's a really cool panel because it's got you know very few colors and the background is all gray his robot parts are you know silver and then everything else is kind of like a pink yeah it's got that pink like target that he's kind of bursting through superimposed over the rest of the panel it is very cool looking i agree i think my favorite panel we already have talked about it but it is a uh, dazzler in her street derby i think it's just a good fucking look it's a nicely drawn panel and i really appreciated that as she is luring vicky into the sun something sex club in san francisco i also thought that the panel where you see the interior of the sex club. Mm -hmm. There are some nicely drawn faces in that. My eye kept going to the like, middle-aged guy in a sweatshirt with glasses who just seems to be frowning really hard at everything. <laughs> like, he seems to disapprove so much of being in there. Why is he there? Drugs. <laughs> oh, fair enough. And then, yeah, right below him in the lower left-hand corner of the panel, you got uh, what looks like William Gaines from the Mad Magazine comics there. Mm -hmm. So, you know, good for him. Yeah, a lot going on. Yeah. I also had the double page Children of the Sun reveal. I don't like what's going on at all in there with, with Vicky tied up on that kind of sacrificial table and all the Children of the Sun guys raising their arms up. Mm -hmm. But it has a really interesting, like, 70s horror 
movie VHS box cover feel to it. Oh, absolutely, yeah. That could be a movie that inexplicably has Ernest Borgnine in it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yeah, from a graphic design standpoint, it's a really interestingly done panel. I also really liked, we talked about it a little bit, but on page six, the one that I call Dorm Room Poster Raven. Mm -hmm. It's just neat. I like when she does her space coaster thing. I think the last time we saw that specific visual effect, it was when she was having her makeout dream with Dick. But it's a cool space coaster, dorm room, blacklight poster thing. It is differently textured than we're used to seeing any of the other images in this. And it's uh, pretty cool looking. Corey, let's take this party to the Bozo. What instance of one character calling another character a bozo, either literally or metaphorically, do you want to talk about? Well, we already covered Vic telling his teammates to stop playing with themselves. Why did they need to stop playing with themselves, Corey? Uh, because they were sitting around? Because it's bun blasting time! Oh, that's right, yeah. So get out your bun blasters. <laughs> stop playing with yourselves. After that, it seemed pretty slim pickings. We had a, uh green slime from dfc to gar mm -hmm. and we had vicky referring to her past self as a fool yes i had those also i did mention nightwing saying hey hey a lot of people react like that i sure did when i was 10 mm -hmm. yeah i think that that is a pretty sick burn on nightwing's part i once again actually dipped into the letters page and once again found something directed at Danny fucking Chase because someone refers to him in their letter as a neo-maxi-zoom dweeby. Dang. Again? Yeah, the dweeb is the common thread. I think last time he was called a dweebazoid, perhaps. Oh, wow. I might be getting it wrong. But this time it is specifically a neo-maxi-zoom dweeby. Which I don't even, that, that's a combination of words that's fucking nonsense. But from context, I was able to pick up that they're not crazy about Danny fucking Chase. It's, uh, it's from the Breakfast Club. Maxi Zoom? Yeah, one of the guys says it to the Anthony Michael Hall character, maybe. Does he say Neo Maximum? He says Neo something something, dweeby. Uh, well, I guess this was before they had the internet, so you couldn't just look it up. It, it would be one of those where you keep rewinding and checking, like with song lyrics. Mm -hmm. Have we talked on the show about how it sounds like Jay-Z says that he's uh, Harkonnen assassin? <laughs> oh, I'm sure we have. <laughs> we must have, I think right? like a long time ago, but yeah. Yeah, in Big Pippin, it really sounds like he's saying, Harkonnen assassin, I got no passion, got no patience, and I hate waiting. He was apparently saying Hart Cold and Assassin, but I still think he was uh, angling for a role in the new Dune movie, which I haven't seen yet. So it is possible that Jay-Z plays a Harkon and Assassin in it, and I hope that he does. Oh, I'm going to be sad now that that's not <laughs> uh, No spoilers, Corey. I haven't seen it. The trailers look pretty good. And Jay-Z wasn't in the trailers, but you ought to save a surprise like that. It's probably in the post credit sequence. Oh, well, Easter egg. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's him and Bun B. <laughs> uh -huh. Look out, House of Trades. Corey, were you able to find a timestamp in this issue? 
Uh, just the one that we've already talked about a bunch, which was uh, Jericho using his beeper. Indeed, he does use his beeper. I was actually able to find a pretty specific timestamp in this one. When Cyborg is trying to convince Wonder Girl that his injury is less significant than hers, you know, having his whole arm ripped off. Mm -hmm. He says of himself, I'm like a living, breathing action figure from Kenner Toys. From 1982 to 1986, Kenner had the license for making DC toys. And in fact, the first cyborg action figure came out in 1986. So that would have been just a little over a year before this comic came out. <laughs> and what makes it a little bit more specific is in 1989, Toy Biz took over the license for DC toys. So they probably wouldn't have been allowed to say Kenner toys in a DC comic anytime after 1989. They'd have to say Toy Biz. When Cyborg says Kenner, that was a reference to the superpowers line, which had ended pretty recently. And it precedes the line of DC toys that Toy Biz put out for the Michael Keaton Batman movie. That is indeed a specific timestamp. Nice work, sir. Thank you. Who did you have as the president of the drama club, Corey? Which character acted, or rather overacted, in the most dramatic fashion? For possibly being so scared that he possibly peed and almost tossed, I went with DFC. Okay. I had a tough time. I, I went with Vicky, I guess. Her monologue about how good it is to be naughty that she was giving to Chris, and she kept, like, just randomly, like, rubbing her head against his chest while she was talking and stuff. That seemed pretty dramatic. As a backup, I had Cyborg for waiting in the car until he could make his dramatic entrance at Star Labs. I feel like Danny was not being dramatic. I think he was just being freaked out, but... I don't know, man. I don't think it's necessarily an overreaction to if you find yourself in a situation like that. Pee your pants and throw up. I'm not saying I'm any better. I'm just saying. It was just overly dramatic for what we've come to expect from mm. him. Well, and to twice announce that you're about to throw up by saying, I'm going to toss it. I'm going to toss it. Yeah, don't. Has he only eaten one thing? What is the it? You don't toss your cookie. It's cookies. He doesn't know. Just a poor dumb kid. <laughs> yep. Who's the world's most powerful telepath and secret agent. Mm -hmm. I think we should have us a battle of the band names. In last week's poll, once again, Savage Assault of the Mind Rats emerged triumphant. Although I will say that the folk rock sandwich-themed stylings of Manservant made it close. In this issue, were you able to find any band names that you want to put up against Savage Assault of the Mind Rats? Gosh, I could only, and this is maybe the first time, come up with one. Okay. Well, I've got a couple, so let's bookend yours. One of them that I came up with was Victoria's Anguish. Which I think is like a pussycat dolls, but more dominatrixy. 
like specifically bondage themed. Although maybe they were too. I'm not actually all that familiar with the Pussycat dolls. Yeah, me neither. I also had the power dials. Mm. I think that seems pretty solid. That's like straight ahead, three power cords. Mm -hmm. The power dials. What was yours? I had a universe of lost souls. Universe of Lost Souls. What kind of music do you think they play? I think it's it's like um really relaxing music, <laughs> like you would get in a massage place or mm. a dentist office, like a stationary store on the coast. Yeah, there's some wind chimes and and stuff, but it's probably also one of these things where a lot of their melodies are written in in minor keys and. It's like you're listening to it and you're thinking like, oh, this is relaxing and peaceful. But after you listen to it for, for a few hours, you're just like, I don't feel good. Oh, yeah. Like a real Wyndham Hill anti-life equation, huh? You're just messing with people, man. Oh. Bunch of creeps. <laughs> well, you know what you have to do to keep people from doing that. You need to make sure people respect your aerial boundaries. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, a joke no one will get ever nope <laughs> zing zing it's it's too bad it's not a uh like a youtube thing where you can put the show note in and they can click on aerial boundaries what's that you know we might have some real Wyndham hill heads out there i don't know some real hedge heads <laughs> the other one i had was the kinky sort Ooh. Which I think could be okay. I think there might be some overlap with Victoria's anguish there. Could also be Texas country music. Maybe they were inspired by Kinky Friedman. Like, not necessarily a cover band, but a, a mm -hmm. pastiche band of Kinky Big Dick Friedman and the Texas Jew Boys. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's, let's go with that. Because otherwise it might conflict a little bit with the uh, Victoria's anguish. Okay, so of our options, what are you thinking? Let's see. Savage Assault of the Mind Rats is uh, a rock band. Mm -hmm. So do we fight fire with fire, or do we go a little different? I'm mm -hmm. maybe leaning towards Victoria's Anguish. I like Victoria's Anguish, too. I want to maybe tweak what kind of music they play. Because I can also see them being like, I don't know, like a, like a monster metal band. Mm -hmm. like, like Misfits style, but all female. Yeah like that yeah let's go with victoria's anguish and they are an all-female monster themed metal band like horror horror metal mm -hmm. yeah i think that could be pretty good all right all right victoria's anguish it is well Corey, i have just one more question i have to ask you wapoot Corey. In the year of our Lord, 1989, and the month of our Lord, November, what was Aqualad probably up to? Wapoot! In November of 89, Aqualad decided to take a little break, and rather than swimming the whole way, he thought he would uh, treat himself to a first-class ticket to Norway. Oh! He really was wanting to go swim the fjords there beautiful glacial bodies of water. However, those first-class tickets were pretty expensive, so he did the old uh, put beaky in your trench coat trick, 
made it look like he had a little bit of a belly, decided mm. to sneak his bird friend on board to go to Norway. And they both made good use of all the free booze in first class and passed out. Oh. About halfway there, this is back in the 80s when people could smoke on airplanes. People had lit up their cigarettes, and it was pretty smoky in that first-class cabin. And Beaky, quite drunk and half asleep, smelled the smoke and started freaking out, but he was still buttoned under a sleeping Aqualad's trench coat, which woke Aqualad up, and he started running around, kind of, ah, what's going on? And, And people saw this writhing mass on his torso, and then Beaky got out and started literally bouncing off the walls and then just scooping up every bit of liquid he could find and throwing it everywhere, (laughs) thinking that there was a fire and dousing the flight attendants and the passengers. And it was just total bonkers stuff going on everywhere. It caused a lot of trouble. There were lawsuits. There were some injuries. And that's why on November 1st, Scandinavian Airlines banned smoking on most of their flights. I think overall that's probably a net positive. Good job, Aqualad. Yeah. And just a, a follow-up, too, to what uh, he was doing a, a couple months earlier. You'll remember the Pan-Euro picnic in August. Mm-hmm. As a result of the events that that had set in motion on November 10th, later the month that the smoking was banned, the uh, demolition of the Berlin Wall began. So that uh, picnic had some lasting impact. Good job, Aqualad. He truly is the greatest of all Teen Titans. Indeed. Well, that may be part of what he was up to in November of 1989, but it wasn't the only thing he was doing. In fact, part of what he was doing was being congratulated by his peers for being the greatest of Teen Titans. That's right, the rest of the gang decided to have a big ceremony and honor Aqualad's accomplishments. All of the many things that he's done for both the Titans and the nation. So they were going to have a big ceremony. And as part of that, they wanted to get him a present. But Aqualad is a hard guy to shop for. I mean, he has access to the entire seafloor. It's all filled with chests of jewels and stuff. So if he wants something, he usually just gets it for himself. So they were asking and uh, Aqualad started dropping a few hints. The gang asked him, what can we get? We really want to get you a present that you'll like. And he said, oh, you know what? I'm sure whatever you getty me will be absolutely fine. (laughs) I I mean, there's nothing in particular that I I need to have. There's no need to go rushing out and get me anything specific. I, I mean, and if I don't like it, you know, that's just life, son. But I'm sure it'll be just completely magical. And so the Titans are trying to puzzle this out. They're like, he's clearly dropping us hints in there. So Speedy, who was back in town for this, is like, oh, I know what it is. He said Russian and then that it would be magical. He really leaned into both of those words. Now, the first Russian player, a guy named Alexander Volkov, just signed with the Atlanta Hawks. And there's a new expansion team that's going to have their first game this year that orlando magic so he wants tickets to the orlando magic atlanta hawks game and the the rest of the titans are like "Uh, i don't know 
I mean, yeah, sure, he's a big Greg Kite fan. Who isn't? Of course he wants to see him rip things up for the Orlando Magic. And yeah, who wouldn't like to see the exhilarating play of Scotty Skiles? But I don't know if that's specifically what he's looking for. Beast Boy's like, oh, oh, he said nothing in particular. And he pronounced that real weird. He probably wants some Pert Plus. We should just get him some uh, some shampoo and conditioner in one. He's a busy kid on the go. He wants to keep that nice Tom Jones fro looking sharp. The, the rest of the gang's like, I, I, I don't know. Maybe that's what he wants. And Wonder Girl steps in. She's like, you know what, guys? You're idiots. I got this. And so she went out shopping for Aqualad, correctly deciphered his clues. And on November 21st, she presented Aqualad with a CD of the new Rush album, Presto, which came out on November 21st, <laughs> featuring the music of Getty Lee and <laughs> Neil Peart and <laughs> Alex Lifeson. Ay, ay, ay. And it truly was magical. The greatest of all Rush albums. And uh, Aqualad really appreciated it because that was, of course, exactly what he wanted. And that is what Aqualad was up to in November of 1989, receiving both the well-deserved accolades of his peers and, more importantly, the Rush album Presto. Nice. Well, Corey, we did it! Yay! We made it through talking about this comic book. Thank you so much for joining me. I enjoyed talking with you about this comic book much more than I enjoyed reading the comic book. I don't know if I am reaching my Titans threshold. We are coming up on issue 50. I think maybe, depending on where we are in the story arc, with issue 50, we should double back and start hitting the Teen Titans spotlight issues. That might be fun. But uh, I don't know, man. I might need a break from this particular title for a second. Mm. Well, I trust your curating of the archives and uh, look forward to uh, whatever's next. All right. Shame they didn't make more issues of Skate Man. We will be back next week with a Defenders comic book, and we'll be back in two weeks with what promises to be the return of the original Starfire. You know, that Russian guy mm-hmm. who's calling himself Red Star now. Mm-hmm. So that should be fun. Should be. Agreed. <laughs> in the meantime, if you would like to get into touch with us, we can be reached at Titan Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311. Portland, Oregon, 97294. Or, as this is the future, we can also be reached electronically at ttwasteland at gmail.com. We're also up in various aspects of the internet. Twitter is where we post that uh, Battle of the Band Names poll, so if you want to make your voice heard on that important issue, you can check us out there. I also posted some pictures of the cocktail-stirring protest signs so uh you can check those out there as well and you know i'll pop up on various other social media sites and say whatever i'm thinking about at the time so you can try to check us out there and hey if we're not there there's another place you can look and that's deep inside your heart Corey, what are you going to be doing in people's heart today i'm going to probably be taking a nap Mm. just relaxing that sounds really really nice Mm -hmm. i think inspired by some of the 
scenery in this comic book. I, I'm going to tr maybe try my hands at making a uh, San Francisco classic. I'm going to maybe make a uh, sourdough bread bowl filled with rice-a-roni and E40 <laughs> CDs. <laughs> I think that sounds delicious. Did he sing? He sang that Yep Nope song, right? Yep. Nope. <laughs> so good. If you would like to support the show monetarily, help us buy some of those E40 CDs to put in that sourdough bread bowl filled with rice-a-roni, you know, that's actually going to be a lot of starch. The CDs are mostly fiber. I don't know. Okay. I, I think E40 has some pretty meaty rhymes. Aww. Yeah, that wasn't good. Anyway, if you want to give us some money, you can do so by uh, <laughs> checking out our Patreon at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do, you get access to a whole bunch of bonus material. There is the monthly podcast, What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. That's where my wife Lisa and I talk about Howard the Duck comics. There is also a whole bunch of video reviews of classic comic books that are up there that I've made been going through the legends mini series lately from the mid 80s and uh just about wrapping that up i should post the final little video about that pretty soon and then uh, i think i'm gonna talk some of the shadow because he's been in some interesting series and a character with a rich backstory so uh, you know if you want to see that stuff or if you just want to support a show that you like and uh keep us being able to do it I would certainly appreciate that. And you can check us out on Patreon and get a whole bunch of bonus material that is exclusive to our donors. So thank you guys if you decide to do that. If you would like to support the show in a non-monetary way, Corey, what's a, what's a way people could do that? Um, leave in reviews wherever you get your podcasts is a way. And uh, also telling people is a way. Yeah, just uh, tell anybody that you encounter. Use what I like to call the jellyfish method. Just uh, float around and anything that you encounter, you try to sting and devour. And in this case, by sting and devour, I mean tell about our podcast. Now, if you are an actual jellyfish, also try stinging and devouring people. I mean, it won't help us on the show any, but you're a jellyfish. It's what you're going to do anyway. Do your thing. Yeah, man, just be you. Mm -hmm. You know, like I'm a jellyfish and I like this podcast five stars. Wait, you are? I'm just saying that's an example of it. Sorry, I'm jumping around a little bit. Oh, OK. That's a review people could leave if they're a jellyfish. Yeah. Or you know what? Lie about it. You, you don't have to be a jellyfish to leave us a review. You also don't have to be a jellyfish to try to sting and devour everything that you encounter. But it's probably not going to work out great for you if you're not. They don't have a stinger. Well, unless you're a bee. Corey, bees have stingers. Uh, okay. Are, are you trying to say bees don't have stingers? No, I'm just, they'd be like listening to podcasts about, I don't know, pollination. Or... Corey, I talk about bees a lot on this podcast. Bees are great. I think they have replaced bears as the animal that I talk the most about on this show, probably. So I think bees would really like this show. What's an example of a review you might leave if you were somebody who liked the show? Um, Corey, all I can think of is bees right now. So? I got bees on the brain. That's not an uh, excuse. 
Okay, okay, here's the review I would leave. I may be a B, but this podcast is an A+. Five buzzes, and that's B for stars. Buzz, buzz, I'm a B. That's pretty cute. It's a good review. Mm-hmm. I like this podcast better than my knees. Oh, which are famously terrific. Mm-hmm. Buzz, buzz. Five buzzes. That's stars. Yep. So those are just some things you can say about the podcast, whether you're a bee or not. <laughs> or a jellyfish. Yeah, bees and jellyfish, I think, are probably our target demographic. Corey, I don't know what I'm fucking saying anymore. <laughs> this neither. comic broke me. Um, <laughs> I-, I love you very much. Oh, you Goodbye. Too. Bye. Fun <laughs> blaster. Corey, I'm going to steal my own Xbox. <laughs> I think I got a good plan. You mean your it's own It's going to be the heist Zobix? of the century. My own Sobix? It's Xbox backwards, man. Whoa! <laughs> <laughs> Don't do it, though. It'll turn evil, for sure. I got no passion. I got no patience. And I hate waiting. Okay, I'm going to... Whoa. Oh no, I pulled a real Danny Chase. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> um. I'm sorry, Corey. I'm going to toss it. Not in the comic group. <laughs> not. Oh, you're right. You're right. Come on. No, that was me pouring the rest of my beer into my glass. All right. <laughs>